0: Welcome to the Mind Dive podcast, brought to you by the Menninger Clinic, a national leader in mental health care. We're your hosts, Dr. Bob Boland
1: and Dr. Carrie Hurrell. Twice monthly, we dive into mental health topics that fascinate us as clinical professionals, and we explore those unexpected dilemmas that arise while treating patients. Join us for all of this, plus the latest research and perspectives from the minds of distinguished colleagues near and far let's hey, dive in. I'm absolutely thrilled, uh, truly. I think I say that a lot of times, but I am stoked
0: so this today. Time is really cool.
1: I meant it every time, but there's an extra bit of excitement in today's intro that we are going to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Shedler. Dr. Shedler is known internationally as an author, consultant, master clinician and teacher. His article, The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, won worldwide acclaim for establishing psychoanalytic therapy as an evidence-based treatment. And I I was saying this right before we hopped on, but uh I know that deeply because I cited this paper gazillions of times in grad school, and right. I am hoping some of my grad school friends are listening, so they'll feel jealous that I'm talking to the Jonathan Shedler. Oh yeah, right
0: I'll, I'll, every resident had to read it at that
2: point. Too.
1: Welcome, Doctor Shedler.
2: I, I was just floored at the. Uh, I, I wasn't going to write it at all, actually. I, I had I had sworn off writing academic papers. I thought it was I thought it was a thankless job. I, I wasn't going to do it again. And I assumed that you know it would be read, it would be read by the usual you know eight people, you know, you know two of whom are your good friends, and the other six are your professional <laughs> rivals, looking to you know tear it <laughs> apart. So I, I was really just you know blown away by you know the reception it got and by the uh, widespread dis- distribution.
1: Clearly, a great need, and the work you've done since also has continued to be well-utilized by the field within, you know, the general broad psychodynamic field, but specifically the psychoanalytic field. So our our kind of, our first question for you, or thought we wanted to ask was, you know, you've been such a champion in the mental health field for looking at, highlighting, demonstrating that psychodynamic psychotherapy is evidence-based, it's effective, and and particularly that it offers longstanding, long-term results. And I, I wonder how you became interested in sort of Taken on this discourse because it it sure has been a, a, a long a long standing discourse.
2: Yeah, because unlike most you know most people who are publishing publishing psychological research, I actually treat patients regularly. And at the time, I was a, an attending doctor in an outpatient psychiatry clinic, and literally every day I was there, there was a procession of patients coming through. You know who were just you know miserable, who were suffering greatly, and just about all of them had had some kind of quote unquote evidence-based therapy, and they had nothing to show for it—like literally nothing. Years of treatment, nothing. You know, the more I I believe in science, I believe in—I believe in evidence. You know, the research literature seems to show, or at least the the buzz about what the research literature shows. Is that these, you know, so-called evidence-based therapies, which is really a code word, as you know, for brief manualized therapies, the, you know, right, the literature seems to show that they're effective, they're called the gold standard. And every single day there was the evidence of my eyes and ears of this procession of patients who had gotten nothing out of it. And I'm like, how can there be such, you know, do I have a bizarrely aberrant patient sample? I don't think so how can there be such a discrepancy between what I'm seeing clinically with my own eyes and what everybody is saying, you know, quote unquote, science shows, which prompted me to look into the you know, research literature more closely. And there was really a, a lot of troubling things going on in, in how research is, is conducted and how it's reported.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, we probably should do some definitions. You're you're actually already started it off because I asked you to find evidence based therapy, and, and particularly the one that's in quotes, uh, since you're right, it is kind of used as a code word. Sometimes it seems to just mean not not psychodynamics therapy.
2: Well, th- well, that's exactly the issue. Let me just before you say anything more, that's exactly the issue. It, it's a code word. It means the code word de facto means. Anything but psychodynamic or psychoanalytic, and and then it, it, I mean it's really a sleight of hand because in fact you know all of these so-called evidence-based, i.e., not psychoanalytic therapies, over time are incorporating more and more and more psychoanalytic methods, and you know the sleight of hand is the things that make those therapies effective to the extent they are effective really come out of the psychodynamic tradition. While the people who are promoting these therapies, I think as a matter of marketing or PR, you know, are devoted to trashing everything psychodynamic. So, you know, the level of of you know insincerity and disingenuousness about how we talk about therapies is to me has been you know, shocking.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's it's a probably a
2: tension in the field that a lot of people
0: outside the field would have no idea about.
2: No, not a not a, not a clue. and we do a terrible disservice to the public because you know, here we are, you know, having our internal turf battles. and you know, ultimately, it's our clients and our patients who pay.
1: I know you probably have another definition, but I wanted to throw in here.
2: Okay, I do, um, but you go ahead. You go right ahead.
1: <laughs> there was a wonderful article that came out relatively recently, and I'm sad I don't remember the author's names, but they studied the public and they studied the public's perception of therapy. And one of the things they found was that a lot of the public had a reaction to psychoanalytic therapy as a, as like a just a terminology. I don't want to be analyzed. That sounds too much. But when they got down to the nitty gritty of what people were looking for in therapy, they were much more likely to be looking for the core tenets that you would find in a psychodynamic kind yeah. of therapy. Than a manualized therapy, I,
2: well, you know, psychoanalysts have been their own worst enemies. I mean, I mean they are deaf, dumb, and blind to public <laughs> perceptions. I you know, I, I don't know who to be more angry, you know, more angry <laughs> with. Um, you know, should I be angry at the people from well, there's there's a lot of stakeholders, right? I mean health insurers. Health insurance companies are in it for profit. They have an incentive to trash what I would call meaningful psychotherapy. Pharmaceutical companies, I don't think they're i don't I think they're in you know indifferent about whether people get psychotherapy, but they have a powerful incentive to steer people. To, to to medication right then there's all the you know proponents of other forms of you know brief manualized therapy you know who love to trash psychodynamic approaches and so so everybody you know everybody is disparaging belittling misrepresenting distorting it but honestly i i, I don't know whether i'm angrier with the people who are doing that or with the people inside of psychoanalysis who are just so oblivious to how they communicate in public that, you know, people don't have a clue what it is, you know, what it is that happens in in these therapies, you know, that's meaningful, because I think it is what people want. And if we talk about it in jargon and theoretical terminology, we're not communicating what, what we're offering. Yeah, I can see you're really
0: averse to a ruffling feathers, but it um, <laughs> <laughs> right, but it, but you know, but why don't we just? I mean, why don't we take that for? A, a, why don't you define what you mean by psycho psychotherapy? Because it is a term. I mean, I think we all think we know what it means, but I, I'm not sure we're always consistent. Well, yeah,
2: let me yeah. let me do it very simply. Yeah. Sure. The fundamental premise is that by virtue of being human we don't fully know our own hearts and minds we don't fully know ourselves if you want to you know attach theoretical terms you know we could speak of unconscious mental processes but i think it's perfectly fine to say you know we don't fully know our own hearts and minds the things that we don't know can harm us can cause suffering can cause symptoms can cause limitations and that there's tremendous value in coming to know ourselves more fully and that happens in the context of a meaningful relationship. You can't separate interventions and techniques from the relational context in which it occurs. I mean, so what is psychoanalytic therapy? It's a kind of therapy where we come to know ourselves more deeply and fully and become freer and more whole in the context of a meaningful therapy relationship in that respect it's exactly the opposite of the kinds of therapies that are being promoted now where we have you know techniques interventions you know worksheets apps etc etc where you know where all these you know interventions are simply stripped out, out of any relational context right which means stripping away the part of it that makes it psychotherapy and selling this snake oil to the public because there are stakeholders that benefit from it and profit from it.
1: I'm I'm thinking about how you know someone we had on on the podcast early on is one of my mentors, John Allen, and he came on the podcast to talk about something he coined plain old therapy.
2: I <laughs> right, I'm right about that.
1: Yeah. And like that, you know, that there's a there's just thousands of different flavors of therapy with manuals and and specificities and interventions. And ultimately even amongst those, the thing that causes maybe that's not the right word. The thing that is is most related to, I guess, if you will, the change that happens is is still the relationship, the experience of empathy, the experience of being attuned to, has seen and known, um that this, again, across all the different flavors of therapy, continues to be the 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 driver.
0: um, yeah. I think you were getting at that early on when you said that mm-hmm. like there's certain parts of all therapies that people want, even if they call them something else.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think people want to be seen and heard, and understood as individuals, right? And they want to be helped to better understand themselves so they don't need to keep doing things in the same self-defeating ways. And what they get instead is, you know, is tips and skills and practice exercises and, and you know, and basically their personhood disappears in the therapy. And in that respect, I would say that the therapy is, you know, the therapy isn't the cure. The, the therapy is, is, part of the disease that it purports to cure, right? That, that kind of stripping away of our sense of personhood. And of course, if we're not responded to as a whole person, as a whole human being by by somebody else in a relationship, it's very hard to experience ourselves as a whole human being.
1: And this is where, again, I think that there, there are plenty of therapists who are doing, you know, saying, this is what I do. I do DBT or CBT or whatever. And ultimately, they are still utilizing a lot of these relational components alongside of it. And oftentimes, like this is when looking at it, this is what the patients are wanting the most, much more than a worksheet, much more than
2: a Patients don't want worksheets and homework assignments. I mean, I'm speaking in absolutes. I mean, sure, some patients do, but generally speaking, it's not what patients are looking for. We have data that tell us that that's not what patients are looking for and yet that's what so many stakeholders in the so-called mental health and wellness space are trying to sell them something other than what they want and they,
0: and you you're sort of already starting to make the point but it uh, the usual complaint even by some experienced therapists i've heard is that well uh, psychodynamic therapy is just either too unscientific depending if you're a critic or too personal to lend itself to like traditional investigation but it,
2: well that's Complete bullshit. Can't be true. Yeah, of course. So you know, so you know. Let me say a little bit about that. I I mean, the 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 duplicity of. of, I'm talking about people in the field. I mean, the the public, the public, they just don't. the messages that they're, you know, that they're given very correctly. You know, this this criticism. You know, you know, the first level of criticism is psychodynamic therapy doesn't work. Well, you know, there's no evidence that it works. It's complete bullshit we have meta analysis after meta analysis after meta analysis demonstrating that it works every bit as well if not better than any of the therapies that are you know sold as so called evidence based therapies we we know it it works right so if the criteria is if the criterion is you know do people improve that's been answered scientifically many times over, right? Then the more sophisticated critics, the next line of criticism is, well, okay, you know, you get these outcomes, it's probably common factors, but there's no scientific evidence for the purported mechanisms of change. Well, first of all, that's flat, flat out untrue, and, and we have quite a bit of evidence for, for, for that. Nobody wants to pay attention to it. But, but the part that's so disingenuous, you know, it's like criticism for thee, but not for me. If you look at the fundamental, you know, theoretical assumptions of, you know, the the cognitive therapy part of CBT, they are flat out false. Science tells us they're false. We know they're false, right? So the mechanism of change in CBT is far, far from established. And you know, somehow want people want to point and say, oh, you know, psychodynamic therapy doesn't have evidence for its mechanisms, which it does, and completely ignore the fact that the therapies they're promoting, you know, have no evidence whatsoever. And you know, what I'm talking about specifically, let me not be vague about it. You know, the fundamental assumption of the the C, the, the cognitive part of CBT, is that you know, our emotional state, you know, moods are mediated by thought by belief and that if you can change somebody's belief if you can change the way they think that's going to change their emotional responses and you know we know from so many sources you know front and center neuroscience that assumption is just wrong and you know it it just sort of boggles my mind that <laughs> people i mean it, it says something about the i don't know what the 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 pr or the something about the culture of psychotherapy research, you know, that just gets glossed over as if (laughs) there's nothing to think about there, but, you know, anything to trash therapies that are, you know, that put relationship and understanding and insight front and center.
1: Well, I'm thinking about, you know, here at the Menninger Clinic, we are are regularly seeing, I I, I don't know if I'd go as far as say it's the majority, but A solid amount of our patients who come in, they've failed other treatments. I mean, I can think of most of my current caseload are patients who've been in and out of manualized treatments. And ultimately, there's something that's really getting missed in regard to why they're continuing to struggle. And ultimately, it does seem to relate more to personality functioning. And, And I wonder if that's kind of an area we can veer into for a little bit and talk a little bit about personality disorders. Um, One of the things I appreciate greatly from your work is that you differentiate between sort of the DSM personality disorders and the criteria listed within from personality syndromes. And I wonder if you can share a bit about kind of your understanding of character or personality pathology and sort of the underlying personality processes that exist.
2: I'm going to say some things that I think most people... You know, when they pay attention to it, we'll think are self evident. So, you know, first of all, people don't start to feel unwell, you know, on Monday and come to see a therapist on Tuesday. Rats. You know, people, mm-hmm. you know, people try an enormous range of things if things are going, you know, badly in their life, you know, to try to fix themselves, to try to make things better. If it's, you know, a person who's fundamentally doing well in life, Right. That is to say, relatively free from internal conflict, who has, you know, good, meaningful, fulfilling relationships with other people, who interacts with others in mutual ways, who's not suffering from, you know, significant internal inhibitions or self-defeating patterns. You know, we all have difficult, painful periods in life. But if it's somebody who's health functioning very, you know, otherwise functioning in a healthy way, they're going to get through it. Pretty much anything you do by way of offering psychotherapy is going to be effective and the overwhelming likelihood is if without therapy you know they're going to come out of it so by the time somebody gets to see a mental health professional we're not talking about encapsulated symptoms you know i'm doing fine my relationships are great my my work is fulfilling i'm happy in my you know i'm happy in my my marriage i you know i Live richly and fully. I just came down with this case of depression or anxiety. Right, that the absurdity of that is just—it doesn't work that way. So, really, you know, by the time someone gets to see a mental health professional, the things that are causing them difficulties are really woven into the fabric of their lives. It's not about what DSM diagnosis do they have, right? Not what you have. It's something about who you are and how you live. So, that's personality when you say personality, personality is a person's you know sort of characteristic patterns of thinking, feeling, coping, defending, against you know against distress, attaching to others, relating, interpersonally relating, or failing to. And all of these things are what we mean by personality. and and everybody has a personality and a personality style, you know whether or not it, meets criteria for a you know dsm defined personality disorder everybody has a personality style and i think you know dsm really did some starting from starting from dsm3 and i think it was 1981 i think
0: mm-hmm. did Sometimes. some
2: real damage to the field because what it did was it, it you know it artificially created these you know the, they wanted to shoehorn personality into you know, into a diagnostic manual of disorders. You know, first of all, how can a personality be a disorder? It's a personality is a personality. So what they did is they took personality styles that were familiar in the clinical literature at the time of the time, ratcheted them up to their most, you know, extreme, caricatured pathological form, declared them to be categorical disorders. And the effect that this had on subsequent generations of, of practitioners is it, it's led them to, to treat other mental health, you know, treat things like depression and anxiety, the things that typically bring people to treatment, as if they were sort of encapsulated disorders that had nothing to do with who the person is or how they live their lives unless they meet criteria for a DSM disorder. So so basically, you know, a lot of mental health professionals unless you can, you know, unless something crosses the threshold to get a personality disorder diagnosis, they treat personality as irrelevant. What I would say is that every effective clinician, really effective and we're working toward meaningful and lasting change, we are not treating, you know, the immediate acute symptom in in a vacuum what we're doing is examining what it is about who the person is and how they function and how they live their lives that is you know that is leading to these symptoms and we address that so i would say that all genuinely meaningful therapy is really focused on on personality right that the goal isn't to change something about the person's symptoms to manage this or that symptom you know really, the goal is to change something about the person who the person is, so they can live life more fully and and freely and and be more whole and that's what we're doing. So I believe personality is actually a you know the center of at the center of what psychotherapy is.
1: I'm thinking about how a common phrase I use in the end of testing reports or in the end of a therapy summary where I'm giving recommendations, I often say something and I, can, I often think this is going to land on my patients as vague, but it's so important to me that in ongoing therapy, what would be most useful is to be in a kind of attachment informed trusting relationship where you can continue to heal and develop a healthier sense of yourself and others. That, that yeah. phrase of like develop a healthier sense of self and other. I'm like, I know that that just sounds really vague. What does that mean? But when I think about for many of my patients, the thing that would help them live a better life and actually get to the goals that they're wanting to get to is developing yeah. a more whole, robust, sturdy, kind, compassionate sense of themselves sure. and of other people.
0: Yeah. I mean, even in the most basic, role, I've heard people not in the mental health field, just you know, primary care doctors say, I don't treat diseases, I treat people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of is what I think we want. But but the whole trend
2: in you know what's going on in in mental health now is to try to you know fragment people into en- encapsulated disorders and pretend that we can treat a cluster of symptoms yeah. mm-hmm. rather than the person who has the symptoms and, and and the psychological vulnerabilities right that that lead to the symptoms
0: well i, I of course yes i mean we often sequester off different diseases into different sort of treatment programs and and often, even more sequester out, pers- you know, personality disorders into their own kind of uh, group. That's often a lot of people refuse to treat anyway. So,
1: and it's yeah. tough because I mean, working here at a psychiatric hospital, we still have to do that. We got to give diagnoses. And we have to make you know, it's it's this complicated dance. I think of uh, uh, of fitting within the model that we have to fit into sure. for all sorts of reasons and and treating the way.
0: We yeah. Do. So I think this is all very well said. I mean, we, we keep talking like about sort of the notion of sort of evidence base and stuff like that. But we really haven't talked. I mean, and I know you can't do a review here, but maybe tell us just a bit about some highlights, you know, things that you think are important about sort of the evidence for psychodynamics therapy or things that you really wish clinicians knew more about.
2: Well, I don't think anybody outside of, you know, the kind of relatively closed psychoanalytic communities, I don't think people even understand what it is. I mean, you know, I mean... There was a kind of a Twitter war about this recently, but you're you're
1: amazing on Twitter. Oh, really? (laughs) Are you on Twitter, Bob?
2: Yeah, but I I guess I'm not. Doctor
1: Doctor Shetler has a real presence in Uh, this way. hmm. I think a similar ruffling of feathers Hmm. would be a good way to say
2: it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you know, people don't know what psychoanalytic therapy is. Psychoanalysts have done. Not just a terrible job of communicating it i I, I mean they' have you know done everything possible to to make a bad situation worse, right so you say psychoanalytic, and somebody who's taken you know psych one o one thinks about penis envy and fixations, and maybe they think about it ego and superego, yeah, and first of all, none of these things are central to what psychoanalytic treatment is they're they're very they're very peripheral, second of all. This is actually not, these are, you know, these are theories dating to the horse and buggy era. They're not how people think about psychoanalysis. They're not how practitioners today think or or, or practice. So basically, people have caricatures of caricatures of stereotypes that date back to you know, 1895. Yeah. And so one thing that came up on Twitter, there was a thread going on where People who are professor, psychology professors teaching Psych 101 were talking about what, what should they what should they eliminate from the Psych 101 curriculum? And they started talking about Freud and psychoanalysis, and it made me a little crazy because the first thing that I <laughs> that was clear to me was they didn't speak about psychoanalysis in their textbooks, and they didn't talk to each other and say psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy. They kept saying Freud, 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 Freud. and it was like they literally did not have a concept that anything has changed in the past you know 125 years. And, and you, th- you know think about an analogy. I mean, we could say Darwin is really you know, central to you know to uh, it's funny, the evolution of the field of biology. I mean he really <laughs> put some core central concepts on the map. but when a student you know a college student takes biology 101, they understand that they're studying biology you know not darwin and you know they might they might learn about some darwin's concepts they might read about him they understand that this is a historical figure and you know the field has you know been developing for a long time when when people take a course in astronomy you know no one says we're studying Copernicus. You know, yeah. let, let's let's eliminate Copernicus from the curriculum. You know, astronomy, <laughs> astrophysics—it <laughs> is not synonymous with with Copernicus. And yet, you know, almost every psychology psych one hundred and one undergraduate textbook I have ever seen has a chapter on psychoanalysis. It doesn't describe anything about the contemporary field of psychoanalysis. Literally nothing. What it Does instead is talk about Freud as if it's synonymous, as if that's synonymous with psychoanalysis, and not just Freud, but Freud circa 1895. And they get even that wrong, right? So we have a huge PR problem here that people hear the word psychoanalysis. And when I say people, I don't mean just anybody, I mean university professors and, you know, educated university students who have studied psychology. And they hear it, and what it calls to mind has nothing to do with what we actually do. So (laughs) that's why I made a point in my my 2010 paper. I made the point in the paper, and whenever I speak about it, I say, I am not going to talk about the evidence for the benefits of psychodynamic or psychoanalytic therapy until we're on the same page about what psychoanalytic therapy even is. Right? That's why I started the paper with here are the seven things that go on in psychodynamic therapy, and when I give this talk to people who you know c b t audiences and they hear the sex the seven things, the first thing they all say pretty much, is, oh, we all do that, that's what we do. you know that's not that's not different. <laughs> actually, it's not, <laughs> but they think it is right? and then you know the ones who are um the more partisan ones will say, Well, those seven things aren't psychoanalysis. It's like, Oh, really? What is your expertise and immersion in psychoanalytic psychotherapy? You're going to tell me what is and isn't psychoanalysis? Because they think it's about penis envy and, you know, ids and egos and superegos. They have no idea. That's That's really not how psychoanalysts talk.
1: And I think maybe as a As a a point related, that it is so common we have patients coming in. And again, I'm, I'm a full time therapist, clinician, psychologist. I, this is why I do 90% of my day. And I have so many patients coming, especially because they're coming in in so much distress. You know, we work in patients, so they're coming in with a lot of distress and they will say, I, I know I've read on the internet what I need is, I need CBT or I need EMDR or I need. Um, this side or the other, and I'm just like, I know it's what we're gonna do is develop a relationship, and then we're gonna try to utilize that relationship to try to help you learn more about yourself. It's also just it is a it is a tough sell when there are so many there there are so many again out on the internet, out for the light public. That's like, the
2: price we pay for all of these stakeholders with this continual you know, bombarding of the public with messaging that's aimed not at. Promoting good treatment or good care, but is aimed at promoting, you know, a brand or an agenda. I mean, you know, think of an analogy. I'm a patient and I have a pain in my side, or I have a fever, and I go to see my internist and I say, Oh, I read on the internet, I'm here for this drug. (laughs) Like people don't go to their doctors and, you know, dictate to them what drug they're looking for or what intervention they go to their doctors and say here's what's wrong you know can you make a diagnosis and you know and and, and treat it but in therapy everybody thinks you know everybody thinks they're somehow in the know and yeah. that that you know there's somehow there's something elevated about going in and saying not you know here's what hurts You know, things suck. My life sucks. I feel terrible. Whatever. You know, can you help me? Right. They they think there's something. You know, something extra to go in and say. I want CBT or I want DBT or I want EMDR. Right. And and what it does is it makes it very difficult for an actual competent expert professional. Right. It just makes it harder for them to create and engage in the kind of relationship that's that's helpful and. You know, I'm very. I'm sympathetic. I've been in the same position. You know, patients come in and they say, "I want." You know, do you do this? And I say, "You know, well, I do a lot of things, but I don't. You know, i I don't think I don't think it would serve either of us for us to put the cart before the horse and decide. You know, what's you know something is wrong. Decide what what's the what what the right treatment is for the something before we understand the something. So. You know, I wonder if we could just reverse the order here. Before we jump to a you know a brand of treatment, let's figure out what's wrong and why. Oh, you know, most patients are actually very receptive to having that kind of discussion. It's just think. it's an extra hurdle, though, right? yeah. because of the messaging they're getting in the culture that makes it a little harder to begin a, a meaningful psychotherapy. So, people listening, whether they be clinicians or patients
0: or really anyone else, I think would be thinking now that. We've really just scratched the surface. Clearly,
2: <laughs> where would
0: you? I mean, do you have any recommendations where people should go next to kind of like to get more information about where we're going? Obviously, your your paper would be one, and and other things like that. People should be looking into because it's like what you're saying is we need really
2: really need to educate ourselves better. I, I mean, not to no 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 plug away plug <laughs> not away to plug myself. And, and actually, for what it's worth, I get. I, there's, I don't get well, any royalties I, profit or profit or any benefits <laughs> yeah. whatsoever, but I wrote a manuscript until recently. was never published, but was widely distributed anyway. It's called That Was Then, This Is Now, An Introduction to Contemporary Psychoanalytic Therapy.
1: Mm.
2: What it I, I actually wrote it some years ago for, for my students when I was teaching uh, doctoral level you know, clinical psychology students, and I was supposed to teach the introductory course on psychoanalytic theory and therapy and as i started looking at books and articles and things to assign i realized they couldn't read any of it I and mean, it was all so filled with jargon or so partisan in trying to promote so
0: validating. <laughs> trying to promote
2: one psychoanalytic school of thought over another i mean, you know you can't make the students into pawns in your internecine battles between you know schools why don't you just teach them the fundamentals of of what psychoanalytic what a psychoanalytic approach is And explain it in in English. So it's called That Was Then, This Is Now.
0: And I believe it's downloadable on your website. Yes,
2: my website is my name, Jonathan On the website, there's a writing, there's a page that's called Writings. That and quite a lot of other papers and articles that I've written are are freely available for download. A selection of that, the 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 sort of most important chapter in in that was just published um, on its own in the journal contemporary psychoanalysis. So if you have access to that that journal, you can, you can find it there also.
1: Dr. Shedler, I am so grateful for the work you've done. Cause as you just said, I think taking, I, I'm thinking about all the many, many analytic papers I have read that I've felt like, oh my God, is everybody getting this but me? Um and so I think the the gap that you have filled in our field so clearly is is taking this type of treatment, advocating for it, showing that it's effective and making it He's maybe more easily accessible to many clinicians. And so I'm I'm so
0: grateful for your work. And I'm also grateful. I I think you kind of modeled what you're talking about. Like we wanted all the answers this time. And you said, first, we need to understand what we're even (laughs) talking about. (laughs) Exactly. Which is a good lesson.
1: And so just thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us on the podcast.
2: Well, it's my pleasure. Yeah.
1: Well, you've been listening to Dr. Jonathan Shedler here on the Mind Dive podcast. We've been your host. I'm Dr. Carrie Harrell.
0: Dr. Bob Boland. And thanks thanks for diving in. in.
1: The Mind Dive podcast is presented by the Menninger Clinic. If you're curious about the professional experiences of mental health clinicians, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen.
0: For more episodes like this, visit www.menningerclinic.org.
1: To submit a topic for discussion, send us an email at podcast at edu.